Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Greg Vendian. And today I have a very special guest, someone that I've been a fan of since the wee years of my life. I would say that uh, back in 1974, when I heard an album by Return to Forever called Where Have I Known You Before, I was 11 years old, and I did hear it when it came out. He is a Grammy-winning drummer, composer, producer, educator. He's a founding father of jazz rock. That's right, he's on Bitches Brew, and I'm very proud and very pleased to be speaking with the great Lenny White today. Hi, Lenny. Pleasure to be here, Professor. So, Lenny, there's so much to talk about. I mean, you're 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 such an important figure in the music, and and you play with everybody. One of the things that I like to do is uh, I like to, to delve a little bit into the origins of musicians and their love for music. And I know you started very young and I know that you were self-taught. So can you tell me a little bit about those early days? Uh, you know, music was played in my house on record players that people playing. So um I had an affinity for music and uh, I just gravitated to it. I mean, you know, with my transistor radio or listening to records, you know, in my mom and dad's house, uh, as I said, they played records all the time. So I was always around music and they were fans of my dad who were musicians and, you know, he would frequent see them or they would come to, uh, house and so like I was around the music all the time so um, I guess I I got it uh, the right way so mm. yeah. what kind of stuff was your dad into Count Basie Duke Ellington John Coltrane yeah those those were his real uh, you know he was a big Lester he was in the army with Lester Young was he really yeah so, so um, those were the uh, musicians that he really followed. And you know what would happen is my family, every Sunday, we would get together, they would cook food, and then they would listen to sides. And they would debate who was cleaner, Bird or Sonny Stitt. You know, uh, they would talk about Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane, you know. So it was around me all my life. So I kind of gravitated into that space and, you know, decided to listen to the music that I was listening to coming up as a kid, which was the Drifters and Benny King and, you know, Coasters, R&B, and the music that was played in my house with Ray Charles and Count Basie, you know. Uh, so I was always around the music. And then I also liked show tunes, mm -hmm. Broadway show tunes. And I'd get the soundtrack albums and listen to them, you know, so. What shows did you like? I, you know, there was well, in any show. I just liked the fact that it was an orchestra playing that was a little bit different than classical. I liked the classical too, but it was a little bit different. 
And, you know, West Side Story was my all-time favorite. And, you know, uh, I know Leonard Bernstein said that it wasn't an opera. It was, you know, um, I guess, I, I forgot what he called it, but it wasn't an opera. And I was so enamored with that music. And then when I went and saw the movie, that, that was my one of my favorite movies of all time. You know? I actually went by myself to see it. It was, it was great. It was great. Did your dad take you to see Coltrane and different bands? Well, I saw Coltrane once. I saw Coltrane. I was actually uh, going to college by that time. High school, excuse me, I was in high school. And um, he played at Avery Fisher Hall. And it was with the, like the Ascension Band. And I know Elvin and Rashid Ali was playing and Alice Coltrane was playing. And, you know, that he had uh, Pharaoh Saunders and, you know, John uh, John Takai. Uh, there was a lot of, lot of music. But, I mean, it was really, really fantastic. I was walking on air after seeing it. It was a great experience, you know. Um, but <laughs> this is, I, I don't know how this plays in, but when I was in elementary school in Queens, um, you know, some kids come in from different areas, you know, moving to wherever. And uh, there was a young girl that came into my class in the sixth grade. And, you know, it was puppy love. And then we went on to the seventh grade. And by the seventh grade, I was trying to really get into my music. You know, I was actually out playing. And so I spoke with her, I said, Antonia, I, your dad is a musician, right? She said, yeah. I said, what instrument does he play? She said, saxophone. I said, oh, wow. What's his name? She said, John Coltrane. Saida was my seventh grade girlfriend. They, John Coltrane lived right across the street from my elementary school <laughs> in Queens. Wow. Yeah, so, I mean, I was kind of involves, you know, vicariously, you know, with the music. I've always been attached to the music, you know. But you know, it's it's so interesting, the, the Queen's situation has come up time and time again. And I interviewed Milford Graves, mm -hmm. great yes. from from Jamaica, Queens, for, uh, for the Yale Oral History of American Music. And, uh, and he told me about the Latin scene in that area. Were you aware of that scene too? Sure. Sure. There, there was, there was, uh, well, there were, there were a lot of groups that actually played weddings and engagements where you had to play all kinds of musics. A, a little trivia fact, but how Miles Davis got to know about Steve Grossman is I went to Miles's house and I played him a cassette tape 
of Steve Grossman, George Cables, uh, Clint Houston, and myself playing at a wedding reception, playing James Brown's Lickin' Stick. And he said, who's the saxophone player? So it's my friend, Steve Grossman. Let me have his number. Next thing I know, he was in his band and playing and recording them. So we played all different kinds of musics because we had to be authentic when you're playing in a wedding reception or a function that needs this kind of music or that kind of music, you know. And and uh, so we played it all. And quite honestly, as you know, Billy spent a lot of time in Jamaica, Queens, too. And we both played with uh, a musician by the name of Weldon Irvine, who kind of got us to play all these different kinds of musics. And in doing that, uh, we really wanted to be as authentic as we could because we wanted to represent the music the right way. Yeah, Weldon Irvine is an important figure, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people that went through the Weldon Irvine school. Me being one of them. Mm -hmm. So when you were coming up, who were your favorite drummers? Well, there's the Magnificent Seven. Magnificent Seven are Kenny Clark, Art Blakey, Max Roach, Philly Joe Jones, Elvin Jones, Roy Haynes, and Tony Williams. That was it. But the Magnificent Seven were the guys that I listened to in terms of playing jazz music. And I listened to Clyde Stubberfield, and Jabo Starks, because they were James Brown's drummers. And I listened to um, Cozy Powell and John Bonham. And I listened to Chupito. And I listened to Nicky Morero and Arrestus Villato. Those are my Latin guys, those are Timbali players. And that's my history of who I listened to as I was coming up. And all of those guys are in my DNA to be who I am. It's interesting to have, have a couple of rock guys in there like, you can't do much better than Bonham and Cozy Powell. Well, I'll tell you a story. You know, um, Bonham was, you know, I mean, he was an iconic rock drummer. Um, and Led Zeppelin was my favorite rock band. And after uh, Black Dog, when I started to listen really to Led Zeppelin, not just, I started to get into other, other music of theirs. And one of the tunes that I really, really loved, which became probably my favorite, was In My Time of Dying. 
That's one of my favorites too. So let me tell you this story. So I was in uh, pro percussion in LA. This is years ago now. And there's a book on the counter that is John Bonham talking about being in the studio and recording these iconic tunes. And so I said, wow, let me check this out. So true story. I went to the book and, and I turned to In My Time of Dying. And in his synopsis of being in the studio and what he was thinking about when he was doing this, he said, by now we had started to listen to more progressive music. And I was into Tony Williams, Lenny White, and Alphonse Muzon. So, bing. That's heavy, man. Yeah, yeah. And you probably know this, but it's it's a fun thing to share with the listeners, is that Jeff Ochiltree, the great uh, uh, drum tech and uh, touring guy, was Bonham's roadie during let me see if I, I got this right. He was Bonham's roadie, and he went from being Bonham's roadie to being Billy's roadie. And he went from Billy's roadie to being my roadie. And then he went from Billy to you. And I have one of his drums right there. Does it weigh 500 pounds? Yes, it does. It's brass. It's freaking incredibly heavy. Made of peisty metal? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. yeah. I played yeah. that drum and, and I would never play it in public unless I had a really strong roadie. <laughs> but I've had, uh, you know, I, uh, there's, there was a drum maker out of Detroit named Steve Bedalman that made innovation drums. And he made me a few titanium snare drums that are not as heavy, but almost as heavy as Jeff's drum. So, yes. And just just to 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 follow through on that story of of Jeff with Billy and Bonzo, Jeff told me that they were in in Bonham's London apartment hanging out. Him, Billy, and and John Bonham. And Billy went to go to the bathroom, and and Oakletree at this point takes a, a moment to say, "Man, you know, Billy Billy's so great," and. Uh, what do you think of, of, of the new the new stuff, John? And Bonham says, it's great, but you can't do any of that stuff in any other kind of music. <laughs> can't use it. And of course, you couldn't really do that stuff in, in Zeppelin. Well, that's see, see that that's a perspective. That's a perspective. See, because you got to think about it from the Whatever music that it is that you play, that's the music that you're playing. Yeah. Now, if you were to take your approach in playing that music and use it into a different kind of music, it just it takes a lot of uh, thought in doing that. But of course, you can do that. I mean, because you got to think about what jazz rock really was. It was the amalgamation 
two totally different kinds of music. You would never, a jazz drummer would say, oh man, no, you can't play no rock and roll when you play jazz. And John Bonham, the great rock drummer said, well, no, you can't use that kind of stuff when you play rock and roll. Mm. And that statement was the opposite of what happened with jazz rock. It did happen, right? Yes, it did. Yes, it did. There's a moment on the 69 uh, Albert Hall Zeppelin video, which I'm sure you've seen, where during the drum solo, John Bonham starts playing the drum also waltzes by Max Roach. One of the Magnificent Seven. There it is. See, I don't think you could really flourish in the second part of the 20th century and be musically myopic. I don't think that that worked. You had to be inclusive. You had to at least have listened to all the different kinds of musics that were happening at that time. You had to because you had to coexist with that music. You couldn't just be this kind of a drummer or that kind of a drummer and flourish because of the fact that things were kind of morphing. And you had to find a new creative way of doing both things as opposed to doing the one thing that you did before. And that's what I think was so different about that music because people had never tried to do those kinds of things before. And it was, you, you were known for doing this or you were known for doing that. But to be able to coexist was a new way of looking at it. And you noticed we were sort of schooled very early that variety was the order of the day. So bands like Zeppelin would have how all these different, you know, an acoustic side or, you know, uh, slow down a country thing when they have, you know, heavy things. Even Black Sabbath had jazz elements. Of course, because the, the music coexisted. You, you can't, art doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, you have to be at least influenced or, or to have some residual from the other kinds of music, other kinds of art that are going on at the time, you know. Um, because if you didn't, then you would be stale. You'd be old. You'd be, oh, I don't want to listen to that anymore. This is what we're listening to now. So it's up to the artists to actually uh, take responsibility to be able to listen and to be able to, excuse the word, fuse these things together because that's what the music became, fusion. Ah. But I don't mind discussing that a little bit with you because my use of the word fusion 
is only as a concept, not as a style. So for me, Stravinsky was a fusion artist and he was bringing together different elements of music from different parts of the world, rhythms from the East, tonalities from, from, uh, from Eastern Europe, all of these kinds of ideas, it's always been about fusing together for the best shit. You know, it's not, there's like no such thing as purity, if you ask me. Well, that's a very interesting concept and a very interesting perspective that you have. Because what is pure is music. That's the whole thing. Music is what's pure. Attitudes are what are different. See, you can play classically with a jazz attitude. You can play jazzy with a classical attitude. MJQ. Right, but the one thing that's pure is the music because you're using the same notes. The rhythms are different because of the fact that they come from maybe different parts of the world. Different scales come from different parts of the world. But what is pure is the note and the rhythm. So, Stravinsky did different things. At the time that he did them, not many people were doing that. So, Miles Davis did different things. He fused different musical styles of musical approaches. At the time he did it, it was new and it was different. And it became, an, you know, like third stream music. Yep. I mean, there were all these different kinds of music, Greg. I mean, but what is pure is music. That's the one thing that is pure. And what happens, especially today, somewhat when they try to morph certain things, I think that there's a possibility that the, the approach is not pure. And the music doesn't have the same weight as the music in the latter part of the 20th century, because that's when it started to change. 1969 was a very, very interesting year. That's when the United States became hip, <laughs> you know, and, and no longer were we just listening to staid musical approaches in all kinds of musics, not just pop music, not just jazz, not just classical music, because it had started before that. And, you know, that was, I think, a, a point where there was a, an accumulation of all of these things happening at the same time. Woodstock, the, the, uh, um, the music that was happening up in Harlem with the, the, the cultural, uh, um, festival that they had the same time as Woodstock. All of these things were 
morphing together. And so for, for lack of a better term, they said fusion. But it was all of these different musics holding their own, somewhat bumping heads, but not clashing. So that's why they called it a fusion because they kind of morphed together. You had Brazilian music that came in and then there's Brazilian music. All these different things were happening, man. You know, for me, that was the time to be an artist because we were challenging ourselves and, and the listener too. Also a big cultural milestone around that time is the civil rights movement. Of course. That would see, but that society now had a different voice, and the voice was being used through the music. Artists were talking about things publicly through their music and talking about it because certain things were kept hush hush, but that wasn't the case anymore. That's a, you know, America became hip. You know, yeah, Stevie was you know doing his own thing at by that point, he wasn't just a uh hit single guy. And, and Marvin Gaye, what's going on? And these issues sure. start to become rather than just I love you, baby, let's go do it. It's now about issues. And C Curtis Mayfield is in there, oh, of course. See, that's the difference between that time period and that music to now, you see. Black Lives Matter really doesn't have a soundtrack. Mm. The fact is, is that now the soundtrack is social media. There's no music that's connected to social media. There's the internet and people talk about what they talk about. What was different back then is the music became social media. How artists talk about what they felt was through their music. And it, it became similar with hip hop, but now it's not even the same with hip hop. Now it's basically social media. That's a very interesting concept, Lenny, that the music was the social media. That's, yeah. that's deep. And you're right. And of course, when Public Enemy comes out and they're talking about, you know, uh, 911 is a joke and fight the power, that was a, a huge moment in social media. Yeah. Yeah. Tribe Called Quest. See, all these, I, I know, I've known these guys when they started. I mean, because Tribe, they're from Queens. Yeah. So, the fact is, is that, yeah, the music kind of morphed and became this platform for us as artists to talk about what we thought was not right and how we needed to possibly fix it. I mean, Bob Dylan did that when he was talking. You know, it started back then. But then again, that's also closer to 69. You know, Bob Dylan started to do that in you know Early when he when he plugged when he plugged in. 
you know, wait a minute, this is a folk guy. Wait, you're not supposed to be playing electric guitar. Well, come on. And he got really ostracized for doing that. He does. So, I mean, uh, it started it, it started a while back, but I think the, between the assassinations, man walking on the moon, all Woodstock, Vietnam, they all came to a big head in 69. 69, 70, boom, okay, we're into a new era now. Let's turn up, play hard, and let's go for it. Yeah. You know? I'm curious about your your ascension in, in the music because Miles heard you with Jackie McLean, is that correct? Okay. Well, here's the deal. Yes, I had played with Jackie McLean. Miles, <clears throat> excuse me, hadn't heard me. He had heard about me. Okay. And for some some historical notes here, you know, Tony Williams was my. For me, he was God drums. I heard Tony Williams. When I was 17, I heard a record called Seven Steps to Heaven. And on that record, Tony Williams was 17 years old. Immediately, he became my guy. That was my focus. I had to be able to do that. And he played with Miles Davis. I had to be able to do that. So my whole curve, ascension, was to be able to be like Tony Williams and play with Miles Davis. So word had gotten around. I mean, I played with Jackie McLean and everybody's, Tony Williams played with Jackie McLean when he was 16. And then he went on and played with Miles Davis. I was like, oh, well. Jack DeJanette played with Jackie McLean and then he went on and played with Miles Davis. So everybody said, oh, why you play with Jackie McLean? You're going to play with Miles Davis. I said, yeah, right, right, right. But that was my focus. Now, Tony had started a band with John McLaughlin and Larry Young called the Tony Williams Lifetime. Now, he got John McLaughlin to come from England to the United States. Miles Davis heard Tony's band and wanted to produce Tony's band. And Tony said, no. So the next thing, Miles Davis called a record date and John McLaughlin showed up on Miles Davis's record date. In a silent way. Exactly. Tony was so pissed that he said he would never play with John, I mean, play with Miles Davis again. So when it was time for Miles to do his next record that he wanted to have Tony and Jack DeJanette on, Tony suggested that I do the Bitches Brew. That's how I got to do Bitches Brew. And also how I got to do Red Clay. Ah. Oh. Tony recommended me for both of those. I also think it was funny that 
Miles, this is this is, I think, in the Miles book. Miles had invited McLaughlin without telling Tony. And Same when thing. yeah. Right? And then and, and Tony showed up and he was there. And if you listen to that record, exactly. He didn't play anything until one point. And then when the one point he brushed, busted out and it was absolutely because well, he's got drums man i mean like forget it that's his concept his approach and just the fact that execution validates concept his concept was unprecedented he he invented or introduced different and new things to drum nomenclature that I hadn't heard before. Tell I me had about that. Tell Tony. Me. Well, see, see, Tony played a five-stroke role and didn't play all beats on the snare drum with two hands. He played a five-stroke role and orchestrated it to be all four limbs. And I had never heard that before. And I said, wow. So, so. I mean, the closest that I had heard to somebody really orchestrating to playing was Max Roach. Right. And then Tony took it further because, and and this is this is a, a point that a lot of drummers, just people in general, don't really include in Tony Williams' playing. Tony Williams came up in a time period where the avant-garde on the East Coast was really very prevalent. And the two guys that are really, uh, um, they're, they're part of that avant-garde movement is Tony Williams and Elvin Jones. And they wound up being the iconic guys in that 63 to, you know, 70 movement because of the fact that, I mean, those records with Gretchen Moncour and, and with Eric Dolphy, Sam Rivers, Sam, I mean, you know, man, Greg, those are some, and that's the essence of Tony Williams that everybody forgets. Not me, but I hear you, <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. I do. You know what I'm talking about. Out to lunch. Yes. I mean, and and the fact is, is like when you listen to to Million Dollar Legs, that's a whole nother vibe, and everybody kind of attaches themselves to that. To believe it, yeah. Believe it and Million Dollar Legs. They don't go back far enough. Uh, they listen to the Miles stuff, but then they don't listen to the other, the Jackie McLean, the the Gretchen Moncour, those kinds of things. Hal Galper. Yeah, I mean, those are, that's the essence of where the the genius of Tony Williams starts and and goes on from that, you know? I mean, he's a freaking master musician. He was a master musician who played drums, who that made him an excellent drummer. But because of the way that he translated through that instrument. And for me, no one ever has translated that way. And 
for me, that, that he was my guy. And for so many of us, because, you know, talk about founding fathers of jazz rock, lifetime is, is immense. That's it. That's it. That's the one. See, those are the guys. At, for me, Tony Williams started jazz rock. And Bitches Brew codified it and said, okay, this is what this new movement is. Because Miles said his whole thing about Bitches Brew was, he said, I could have the greatest rock band in the world. And so this is, and what what jazz rock was, is jazz musicians doing their version of rock and roll. You know, I love Bitches Brew, obviously, for all of its importance. But I think there was something unhinged about Lifetime. Of course. So life, great. Lifetime was an organ trio on steroids. So what you do, you can't, okay, a jazz piano trio and an organ trio, those are staples of jazz uh, uh, representations, a quintet, a quartet, those are staples. So Tony took a staple. He didn't, you know, do something that was, you know, different. He did something that everybody knew and did something different with that. That's the whole point. Yeah. That's the brilliance, you know? Well, he knew that there was rock organ. And he knew that there was, you know, John McLaughlin had done everything, including free. He had done all this, the jazz straight ahead stuff. And, and everyone was post Hendrix now. Well, yeah, but see, I think that Tony had seen Keith Moon and said, man, come on. I could do that better than that. And I think that's what he was. That's what his impetus was. That's interesting. Yeah, I think so. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I know the story that, that Jack tells of Miles playing him Hendrix with Buddy Miles. And Jack turns to Miles and he says, so you want me to do this sort of thing with my technique and my ideas? Okay. Well, you know what's really interesting? My favorite Jimi Hendrix is Band the Gypsies. It's the best. And I spoke with Buddy Miles, and he said he used a 20-inch bass drum on that. And I said, really? He said, yeah, that was a 20-inch bass drum. <laughs> Man, I mean, like, it sonically, it just, like, hit. You know what I mean? And the other thing was, so after I did Bitches Brew, and... I was in a club playing with Steve Grossman, Dave Liebman, uh, I think Cables, George Cables, Calvin Hills playing bass, and there's two drummers, Bobby Moses and myself. And so we're in this club, and Miles comes to the club. And after the break, he comes into the back, and he comes to me and he says, do you want to play with Jimi Hendrix? Now I'm in awe of Miles Davis. Miles Davis. So I said, "Yeah, nah." <laughs> you know. 
But he was putting together, because he and Jimmy, you know, he was putting together a possible band for Jimmy. And so he was asking me. I know that Tony had done something. There's a recording that they had done. Is there? That, yeah, with Jimmy. Tony and Jimmy had played, you know. So, um, but I don't know. There were, there were two gigs that I did not do that I somewhat regret. That was one of them. So, did Miles and Jimmy ever play? Uh, supposedly they did. I don't know that. I'm not going to go and say, oh, yes, yes, it is. I don't know that. Because the, the, the stories you hear are that Band of Gypsies was frowned upon by management. Yes. Because it was a black group and they wanted a mixed group. And also that it wasn't about the histrionics of the stage presentation. It was about the tunes, power of love. I mean, some of Hendrix's best tunes are on Band of Gypsies. Are you kidding me? Of course. So that one note with the harmonic, forget it. I, I know guitar players that they'll just wait for that one note. And, and it's, it's classic. It's, uh, what can I say, you know? Uh, I, I have a good friend, a, a great guitarist, um, who's a great producer, uh, David Bendis. And we sat and analyzed that uh, note that Jimmy plays, because there's a harmonic that happens before it hit the downbeat, and it's, it's classic, it's so great, you know? Yeah, and I think he was heading towards jazz rock, or if he, if he I think of him as, as a jazz rock guy to begin with. Yeah. Right, third stone, any of that stuff. Six miles. Miles was totally enamored with machine gun. Hmm. I mean, that's that's. You know, Star Spangled Banner is great, but machine gun. Right. That you know, the fact is, the emotion, and just the pure sonic. Painting that he does when he's, it's like it's a machine gun and he's in war. It's like, it's amazing, you know? Yeah, it's very much music of that moment, but it's eternal music too. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, when, when, when you show up for the Bitches Brew sessions, tell me what that looks like. <laughs> That's my first major record date. I go into the studio and we're set up in a semicircle. And so I set up next to Jack and then there's Don Elias with his percussion and Juma Santos with his toys. And everybody's set, you know, in a semicircle and Miles it's like a conductor that's in the middle. And what happens is how it's um, orchestrated is we start to play grooves. And Miles points to John or points to 
uh, uh, Wayne and they play and then he stops and then we start up again and, and then everything is edited together. It's kind of interesting. So Miles comes to me and he says, look at this. I mean, think of this as a big pot of stew. And I want you to be salt. Hmm. What musical knowledge am I going to call upon to sound like salt? So I had to create music before I learned how to play it. And it was an interesting concept because I tried to, what I wanted to do was to make it sound like one drummer that had eight arms. So I was trying to make it as seamless as I could. I didn't want to show that it was me. And that, that wasn't my concept. My concept was to blend in and to make it sound like this thing that had all these legs and was moving across like this, like an amoeba, you know? And to a certain degree, I think that it did sound like that. It was the most African sounding thing. I, I didn't know what, what I, didn't, I couldn't call it this or that. I didn't know what to call it because we hadn't created it before to the point where I, I know that he didn't want certain things. This is interesting. Talk about that, please. Yes. Again, going back with my story about Tony Williams being my guy. So, I mean, so I'm there. And Tony's not there, so I'm there. So I guess Miles wants what he heard Tony do. And that wasn't necessarily the case because on... Miles runs to Voodoo down. Jack and I started playing this stuff and, you know, like it was kind of like Tony, that vibe. And Miles was frustrated. He said, no, that's not what I want. And Don Elias, who's playing percussion, said, Miles, I think I know what would work. And he came on my drum set and played this really simple beat. Jack couldn't play it either. Hmm. And he played this very simple beat and that worked. So I wound up playing percussion on that tune and Don played drums on that tune. <clears throat> and I learned a very, very important lesson that I've kept with me since that point. And that is that you should never assume somebody wants something you should ask what's needed and wanted and as a professional give your best representation of what that is so was miles very verbal about this during the session was he yeah, he's, he told me he said no you ain't getting the chicken <laughs> I was crushed, man. You don't understand. I'm a young 19-year-old guy that's never been in a studio with these caliber musicians. And this is God telling me I'm not getting the chick. And I probably played more funky stuff than anybody on the session. 
coming from Queens, playing all that stuff, man. You know, trying to represent all those kinds of musics that I heard on the radio. And so, you know, after the session, I was kind of despondent. I was kind of, and he said, what's wrong? I said, well, you know, I wanted to give my back. He said, no, 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 no. Come back tomorrow, 10 o'clock. We'll start again, you know. Because, you know, I, I, I believe he was experimenting with what it is that he wanted. He didn't know, he, what he did is he got the musicians that he thought could give him what it is that he needed, but he didn't know what that was yet. And we were all finding it out at the same time. I see. It was an experiment in musical direction. You know, he had heard all these different things and, you know, he got certain guys that he thought could help him get that. Yeah, and that period where he's got a lot of consistently drums and percussion and multiple keyboards. That was the first record that he had percussion on. You know, and no synthesizers, <laughs> but, you know, it was new, great. It was a new direction, man. This was something that we hadn't heard before. And and for me, we made that record in August of 69. In October, I woke up out of a dead sleep, sat up in my bed and said, oh, I recorded with Miles Davis. And it took me that long for me to recognize what I had done. And what was interesting for me is the fact that it was documented. Right. No one would ever be able to take that away from me. It wouldn't be hearsay. Oh, yeah, I heard that Lenny White played with Miles Davis one time. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. No, this was documented. This is going to be a recording that everybody for the rest of the history of the world was going to be able to say yes. And these are the guys that were on that. And that was important for me. And it be became an epic, important, <clears throat> classic album. What's your favorite stuff on Bitches Brew? Spanish Key. And Pharaoh's Dance. Those, those were, those were, uh, matter of fact, you know, I, um, I've actually, well, now I started 20 years ago writing concert music and, uh, I've kind of morphed what it is that I've done into what it is that I'm doing now. <clears throat> and I've written a couple of pieces um, and I've used some things from Bitches Brew into my concert music. And I've, you know, Stravinsky said, you know, uh, everybody steals the best 
thieves, you can't recognize where they get it from. And so there's a, a, a part of Bitches Brew that I've used in some of my concert music. And I actually love how it works. No one else would be able to hear it unless I told you where I got it from, you know? Um, but I like that. I like the fact that like, you know, I steal and people can't recognize me. And then when I tell them where I got it from, they say, oh, right, right, yeah, yeah, you know. Because everybody does. Everybody does, you know. Of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, even if it's unconscious, that's right, that's in, right. You know, it's in there, you say it's in your DNA and it's it's already become transmogrified once it's inside you anyway. Right. Synthesized into another another warp, warped way of thinking, and and, and even uh, Andy Partridge has said to me that you know you you steal, but then when you use that stuff, you do it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's so, a good way. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's the process of of doing it badly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Was that the only time you played with Zawinul? Well, kind of, yes. Um, I'll tell you what happened. I did. I played with Zawinul then. And then I went on and did Return to Forever. And while I did Return to Forever, I did Jocko's record. <clears throat> and so when Return to Forever broke up, I got a call from Joe. And Joe calls me and he says, hey, listen, um, I know you did Jocko's record and Jocko's very fond of playing with you. And I wanted to know if you wanted to come and join um, Weather Report. And I said, well, Joe, you know, I just got out of a band that was like a iconic band. And I'm really open and wanting to try my own music and, you know, do that. And he understood. He said, yeah, no, okay, it's not an issue. You know, he didn't hold that against me, but it would have been interesting if I'd have gone and, and done that, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't, I, I played with Miroslav on some things that I thought was Joe was going to be involved, but he wasn't and, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. Tell me a little bit about Azteca, because that's an interesting band. Uh, yes, it was. So now you actually see the lineage of what ha what happened with my careers. I did Bitches Brew. I did Red Clay. <clears throat> um, 
And so I'm working with, I worked with Joe Henderson first for about 18 months. And that's where uh, I got to work with Stanley. Right. Because I heard Stanley play with, Har uh, um, <clears throat> Silver. The man I said, wow, this guy's. And I walked up to him and I said, hey, man, I introduced myself. I said, uh, Joe Henderson needs a bass player. Here's his number. Give him a call. So we worked with Joe for about. 18 months. And then I left with George Cables. George Cables and I worked with Stanley <clears throat> playing with Joe Henderson. George Cables and I left and went and played with Freddie Hubbard. Stanley stayed and Chick came and played with Stanley with Joe Henderson. Then Stanley and Chick left to play with Stan Getz. So they played with Stan Getz for a while and Tony Williams played with them. Right. And then they formed Return to Forever with Flora and Aerto and Joe Farrell. <clears throat> so I leave Freddie Hubbard because I get a call from Coke Escovito who is Pete Escovito's brother, Sheila Escovito's uncle. And I had done a record with Joe Henderson, Stanley, and Carlos Santana with um, Luis Gasca, who's a trumpet player from uh, the Bay Area. And I played with him and uh, Carmelo Garcia, who's a, a timbali player. And I played with uh, Francisco Agobel, who's a Cuban conguero. And so now I'm in these, uh, uh, the realms of this Latin music. So, I go out and uh, become a part of this band, Azteca. This band has four horns, four vocals, three keyboard players, bass, guitar, and percussion. So this is now the Latin version of Bitches Brew. <laughs> And we make a couple of records. So one of the records, I mean, the first record we made, like, you know, it was great. And Neil Sean plays on it. Um, Paul Jackson, mm -hmm. bass player. Mel Martin is one of the saxophone players. Um, uh, Victor Pantoja. Wendy Hawes is one of the singers, you know, so like it's, 
all this morphing of people that play with Santana and, you know, Malo and, uh, you know, with Aztec. So this is a big band to the point where in the book Hitman, uh, Clive Davis talks about a secret band that he's going to introduce at midnight at the Grosvenor House Hotel at the convention in London. That's the band, Azteca. So Earth, Wind and Fire is now signed to Columbia, Azteca. So there's this morphing of all of these different people, all these different bands. And, you know, I, I spend six weeks at a time in San Francisco, and then I come back home. I'm going, I'm bi-coastal. So I'm out there playing with Azteca, and I get a call from Chick. They are in Japan. And Flora and Ayerto and, and Joe Farrell are leaving Return to Forever. And Chick and Stanley are coming to San Francisco to play at the Keystone Corner for a week. And they want to know if I want to play. I said, yeah, sure, great. I'd love to, love it. So we play for a week and it's absolutely incredible. It's fantastic. I mean, trio? yes, electric piano, amplified upright bass okay. and drums. And we play a lot of the music that they played with Stan Getz. And it's really, really fantastic. The last night, two Bay Area guitar players sit in. Barry Finnerty and Billy Connors. <clears throat> so the last night we do that, Chick comes to me and he says, hey, listen, I want to start an electric return to forever. And I want you to play. And I said, well, Chick, I think I'm going to stay out here and play with Azteca. I thought it was going to be big rock stars, you know. Oh. So I stay. They go back to New York and they get Stevie Gadd to play. While I'm out there in San Francisco, <clears throat> excuse me, Herbie Herbert, who's a manager, comes to me and he says, hey, listen, man, would you want to, you know, do a jam session with Neil Sean and Ross Valerie? I said, yeah, sure, man. So the three of us play at SIR out there. <clears throat> it's cool. And they're like, whoa, man, this is killing. Now, Greg Rowley has left Santana. And so there's going to be this band that they're going to. So they asked me, they said, listen, would you want to be a part of this band? Now, Chick has called me again. And he says, listen, man, why don't you come on back and play with us? You know? And I said, okay. Okay, so I leave Azteca <clears throat> and I go back to play with 
Chicken Stanley. Now, the fact of the matter is that I told you that I regret not doing two bands. I mean, two things. One was Jimi Hendrix. <clears throat> and the second was this band that they asked me to be a part of. And you know what that band is? Journey. <laughs> That's so, really funny. So yeah, that <clears throat> and Journey was pretty proggy at the beginning, right? Yes. So I left and went back and played with Chicken Stanley, and they got Ainsley Dunbar to play. Right. right. He's the first drummer. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that's my Azteca movement into <laughs> Return to Forever. <laughs> and you're, you're like the Zelig of jazz, you know. <laughs> <laughs> of music. You're like. <laughs> Tentacles are touching all these areas, but you can't be captured. But you know, the thing about it, like you have to understand, that's what music was like back then. Yeah. It was doing this, it was morphing all of these different things, and guys from different types of musics were experimenting and getting together to try different things. That's what was happening. That's why it was so great, man. I wanted to ask you about him, though, him to the Seventh Galaxy. Is it true that that was originally recorded with Gad and then you came in and, and redid tracks? Yes. Yes. How did, did that work? Well, <clears throat> they had done it. And then, you know, we uh, went in and, and redid it. Everybody redid their parts? Yes. Ah. Oh. No, I, I didn't play over Steve's tracks. No, not at all. We went in and redid it. It was a different feel. They they wanted a different feel. They wanted, you know, more. You know what it, what had happened? Is Chick and Stanley saw Mahavishnu. It freaking blew Chick's mind. He said, oh. Okay, that that's what it, that's what it was. <clears throat> you saw that happen to an, a, a few bands. It happened to Zappa. Yeah, but you see, everybody was 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 moving in the same. Everybody was swimming upstream, and those that had the strength to make it. That's what happened, because everybody couldn't, you know, the, the current was being pushed another way, and we were swimming upstream. That's why only a few made it, and those that made it made a real good perspective of what it was supposed to be, and that's how the movement went. And would you agree that the movement and those that were most successful were not just the bands that could play their asses off, but the bands that had writing? Without a doubt. That's 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 the point in anything. In in any kind of music, in any kind of music, you have to have iconic composers to represent the movement. If you don't have iconic 
composers who have compositions that you can point back to say, that's that kind of music. That's that kind of music. That's hip hop. That's, if you don't have that, you don't have a movement. You know, uh, uh, execution validates concept. If you have a concept and you can execute what that concept is, then that is, it's a valid concept. If you can't execute, if you have an idea and this doesn't come off right, it does. It is no longer a concept. Oh, that was just an idea that I had. Uh, yeah. But that's what happens. Execution validates the concept. So when you have iconic composers that make these compositions that show this direction, ah, yes, that's that kind of music, without a doubt. That's exactly what what happened. So you have Chick, you have Stanley, you have Joe, you have John, you have Jan, all these guys that are bringing it compositionally. Yeah. And and, and the thing about it, which is great, it's very interesting because I had a conversation. Do you know, have you seen the Stick People videos? Yes. <clears throat> did you see Billy's? Not yet. Did? No, no. It's very interesting because I think Bill, because you know Billy and I go back quite some time, but what happened is when we did with with uh, um, Peter Erskine, mm. Peter Erskine asked me. He said, <clears throat> "How did you remember all of that music, man?" Now, what was interesting is I think. Greg Rico or, or Mike Shreve asked Billy the same question. And what Billy's answer was, because I, I hadn't thought about it, what Billy's answer was, was the best answer, <clears throat> excuse me, that I could have given because it was the same. He said, I just remember what everybody else was playing and I played to everybody else. And so I didn't memorize the, a particular passage i knew what john played and i remembered what to play by what john played and what i played opposite to what john did yeah. <clears throat> and that's the best way to describe it and he said that that's what he and i did because he, he grouped me in that and i that was the case that was exactly right that's what we did and, 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 and those great compositions made us play a certain way. And what we, we remembered what we did in those compositions, as opposed to remembering the part. Yeah. And there's a lot of notes. Chick, you know, <clears throat> Chick's writing. There's going to be variation sections. There's going to be transitional sections. Well, that was the whole thing. Is, and I say this to my students today the music was episodic like classical music it was episodic because it you would have a door open into a room and one artist would play in that room a certain way and then you'd leave that room 
and the next artist would play in a different shape room. Right. And that's what helped the journey. There was a journey that went through all of these compositions. And you, I mean, Duel of the Jester and the Tyrant, that's really ridiculous stuff, man. It's, now there's a couple of tunes that Chick wrote for Return to Forever when we got back together that no one's ever, actually just one that, that I recorded on uh, the present tense record called um, Capri, Caprice. But there's, there's two other pieces that are absolutely epic, epic pieces that no one's heard. Oh man, and I really wish when we got back together in 83, he wrote these pieces. And man, it was, they're really absolutely brilliant. At maybe some point, I don't know, maybe they may see the light of day. I don't know. But I mean, really, his best, some of his best writing for Return to Forever hasn't been heard. Mm. But can I tell you some of my favorites? Sure. I have to say, it was a ritual for me as an 11 or 12 year old <laughs> to sit and just experience and live through the journey of Song to the Pharaoh Kings. That's one of my favorite pieces. Now, I'll tell you something about that. I actually, I, I listened, someone gave me a, um, a stick because you you know there's no tapes nowhere and you don't have CDs players in your car you have to put a stick in the car now. But someone gave me a live version of Return to Forever 1983 in Japan, and we were playing that music. Mm. And everything was like nine thousand miles an hour, but but you know. Um, <clears throat> When we got back together in 2008, we played Song to the Pharaoh Kings. And Stanley and I, because we, we, we kind of morphed through all the different kinds of musics that we listened to. And, and then just like when you said that Bonham said, you can't do this, <clears throat> that's exactly, we did the opposite of that. We took things that we heard outside of that music and inserted them in the music. So, <clears throat> excuse me, when we got to Chick's solo in Song to the Pharaoh Kings, Stanley and I would play Candy by Cameo. And we would put that, insert that into, and it was so killing, man. It was great. You know, but that's what we would do those kinds of things. Yeah. You know, because you don't want to play it like you played it back then. So like you add these new things. And it was it, it for me, it was so great to to ex attempt to play these things with fresh ears. It was so great, you know, so Song to the Pharaoh Kings is one of my favorites, too. Definitely. That's my favorite record, you know, of Return to Forever. Where have I known you before? There's a <laughs> lot to be said about it. it I mean, it kind of has it all. It has chick solo piano. 
yep. right? As interstitial stuff, which I think, by the way, I, something I stole on, <laughs> on my on my uh, trio album, Change. I did interstitial drum solos. Well, kind of stolen from Spectrum too, but but that idea, and then it has the your cool tunes. It has Stanley. It has Chicks classic stuff. Um, yeah, I could see why that would be the one. And it also, it's kind of, like I said, I went back to him because it was contemporaneous for me to hear Where Have I Known You Before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was that moment that was where it was that record. And then, of course, those records that had poetry on them and you'd read the poem, the <laughs> Neville Potter poem. Yeah. But you see, the whole point is <clears throat> that was our first attempt to making a concept record. I had always talked with everybody about the records that Yes and King Crimson had made because they were uh, uh, records that had themes to them. And I thought that that was, because I listened to all the prog rock stuff and I, and I thought that that was the way to go. I thought that Return to Forever should not just do tunes. We should do tunes that were related to each other that had a story. And so hence, Romantic Warrior. That's the true first uh, um, record that had a, a theme. And because I thought that that was the way that progressive music was being uh, uh, presented. And I thought that that was the best way to communicate. And those bands really communicated. And what was interesting is we did not have a vocalist. That's right. And so I thought that this was the way to kind of tie that in, is to at least tell a story, even if we didn't have words to tell it melodies could do that. We could make a listener know that this is what we were talking about. And so that's how we did return. To, I mean, we did Romantic Warrior. And I think you'll get a kick out of this, but you maybe you already know that it's a perennial argument between musos. Is, is Romantic Warrior a jazz rock album is it a prog album is it this is it that is it what's the concept it's a concept album and so i love that it can't really be nailed down it can't it's just music the tunes are amazing there are tunes that are fun and humorous and there are tunes that are deadly serious i mean well, the, you know yeah, that was the whole point see you gotta understand <clears throat> For me, as a musoid, Mahavishnu was, but it was too heady. It was too, it didn't communicate enough. It communicated to the guys that technically, they would communicate that way. But I thought that what it did is it made them all virtuosos, mm -hmm. but you can't talk to virtuosos. 
<clears throat> they're like here, you know, and what I wanted to have happen and Chick wanted to have happen is for us to be able to communicate. So this is the reason why we play this music and I come out with big glasses on. You know, it was kind of a cross between Mahavishnu and Zappa. Mm -hmm. Because Zappa, you know, he come out with crazy stuff and, and it related. And that was the whole point. That's what I wanted to be able to do. And, you know, we come out and tell a joke and then we go play this really heavy music. <clears throat> I think that that's what worked. I think that Return to Forever communicated. And that was very, very important. So, so when you say, was it a Prague record? Was it a jazz record? It was ambiguous. But all we wanted to do was communicate. However, we could do that, you know. And connect. Yes. And it did, and, and it sold through the roof. Yeah. It's an iconic album cover. I yeah. mean, also that whole thing of that era of the album cover pulling you into that world that you're going to be listening to. Yes. And yes. I remember having vivid visions of the scary parts of the magician <laughs> like that, that mysterious opening right 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 <laughs> so, come on man and then and then the and then the the handbells yeah which nobody was doing you know and then i have you know very fond memories sitting in my my attic room in Teaneck, New Jersey, listening to Jester and the Tyrant and being really, you know, oh, the, the tyrant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he, he's coming around. But then the Jester's like, fuck this, man. <laughs> I'll, I'll take you down. And, right, 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 right. And it was it was an adventure of listening. And I cherish that so much. And of course, that inspires you. And Return to Forever, I'll say this for all the fans that, that are I know will agree with me, Return to Forever and bands of that era showed us how to make instrumental music reach. Yes. yes. And yes. reach across and give people a fighting chance to get on board with something that's a little elevated from maybe what you were used to. Yes. Right? I mean, yes. Medieval Overture lays down the gauntlet if you don't mind the metaphor, lay <laughs> down the gauntlet right at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I agree. And you know what? Actually, what what solidified that for me is we played uh, Central Park. Yeah. Schaefer Music Festival, <clears throat> and the Wallman Skating Rink held 7,000 people. And we played there and they broke down the fences and there were 12,000 people there. Mm. And it, I realized that this 12,000 people 
There's 5,000 more people than the capacity to come see a band that has no lead singer, that has no hit song on the radio. I said, this is something. This is a change because yes, this music can compete. This music can communicate. That's when it really became real for me to see that. That was the point. And I think you guys even set up the possibility of success with Weather Report's Heavy Weather a year later. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, well, you had, we talked the other day, we talked about Frampton. Yeah, right. That actually kind of made the transition for this music to really, really have legs. And that was a vocal record. Right. But long solos. Yes. Yes. That was different. Mm -hmm. That was different. I mean, you know, I, I look back at Close to the Edge, Roundabout, and these were records that I listened to that I said, wow, there's some other kind of movement, you know, with the music and, you know, the things. <clears throat> and then after that, the records that came, the, the one record that I go to that uh, was very influential for me after me doing all of this stuff was Asia. Oh. Because that record, I saw the potential of jazz and pop music morphing together to be both uh, uh, pleasurable to listen to and on the edge at the same time, playing some different kind of chords and rhythm. I said, man, you know, this is killing, man. You know, I mean, Gad sounds incredible and Wayne Shorter sounds incredible. <clears throat> Joe Sample, Purdy, everybody sounds incredible on there and they're in their lanes and it worked. I said, okay, conceptually, this way. And this is after the music that I played with Return to Forever, you know. Yeah, no, it's a very interesting point because you're right. Asia does jump off the tip of, of what that other stuff was happening. I mean, look, Steely Dan was going to do what they were going to do. Yeah. But, but Asia is a kind of distillation of a lot of that, that moment's concerns. Yes, I mean, I went back and started listening to older uh, Steely Dan records, and it was great, you know. Real scam. Yeah, I mean, there was some real great stuff on there, man, you know. Um, <clears throat> so we've, we've had a very interesting journey, man. So where are we now? <laughs> well, I want to get to that, but I got to ask you, so at the, at the peak of Romantic Warrior, why can't you guys continue? <laughs> the simple answer is an honest human answer. It's the same reason why 
Mahavishnu couldn't continue. It's ego. The best way that I can explain it is all of that energy that it took swimming upstream. When you make it and and you're codified as being one of the best swimmers, you don't want to share the fact that it was a team that helped you get to that point. And you want to continue to, to swim, but you want to swim your way and you don't necessarily want to include everybody else. Well, it becomes a band of leaders Right, you guys all were doing solo records, weren't you? Yes, but the point is this, the greatest dynamic that you could represent yourself with is a band. Because what a band is, true band is the best definition and, and uh, um, example of a true democracy and how democracy works. But what happens is, I was just talking to somebody the other day, you know, like I'm, I'm a big movie fan and, uh, and I like, you know, uh, science fiction and action movies, but I'm tired of the freaking same uh, premise. A maniacal guy wants to rule the world. And so everybody bands together so just 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 that perspective of a group of heroes banding together to stop one maniacal guy that wants to rule the world. That's exactly what happens. So, I, you know, and I know that Jan, when when Mahavishnu Project was working with Jan, he told me about the dynamic of everybody wanting to have a certain amount of music on the records and and John, uh, you know, being the dominant force in that and Nat Weiss and all these things. But you guys were having tunes on every album. Well, see, here's the point. I don't know if you know this, <clears throat> but when we signed to Columbia, this is the first time in, well, I, I, there'll prob probably be somebody to go through the woodwork and find it. From my recollection and the recollection of everybody that was involved in this, the first time there was a band that was signed to a label that had individuals in that band signed to different labels. Oh. So, because what had happened is it was Chick's band. There's no, no doubt about that. But what had happened was it became a collective consciousness that grew to the point where it was a band. 
and what was the true power was the ban, and that's what was signed. The ban was signed, and everybody had their own individual things. But the true force is when those four guys came together, that's where the energy was. Everybody could do whatever they wanted to do, but bang, this is where the power was. And the power broker couldn't handle that. So, and, and, and no disrespect. I mean, you know, this is, this is the human frailties that we have. This is one of them. And to, to be able to share in the perspective of the power, that was an issue. But that's an issue for, for everybody, man. You know, don't fault. You know, it's part of life. That's what happens. It's in the office place. It's in academia. Exactly right. Exactly right. So in understanding that, that's the answer <laughs> to what happened. And it happened not just to us. It happened to the biggest bands. You know? Let's talk a little bit about your solo albums, because I was a big fan of Venusian Summer and also uh, speaking of your your love of sci-fi. <laughs> you know, that's the record that I don't like. Astral Pirates you don't like? No. Why not? I didn't like the way I played. I didn't like the way it was mixed. You know, um, I would have liked to have mixed it again, played some things again, you know. But that's OK. I, You know, it's. It's what it is, you know. I'm I'm so honored that people loved it. That's great, you know. And you know, I was talking to uh, somebody the other day. Uh, there's some compositions that I played for the orchestra, and they said um, we loved these compositions. I said that's great because it doesn't matter if I like it or not. If you like it. That's the test, you know, so. Yeah. But, you yeah, know, um, Venusian Summer was really, 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 really great for me because it was the first one that I did. And, you know, you can actually hear my, my musical DNA on that record. Yeah, it's a lot of different areas. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. What I wanted to be able to do is use an orchestra. And so what I did, along with Pat Gleason, is create an orchestra. And how we did it, this was before polyphonic synthesizers. Is it? Yes. So what we did is we created a hundred strings by doing one at a time. We did a hundred tracks of a string sound going do 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 do
do do do and you got this tension to sound like an actual orchestra but that's pat gleason's genius in using synthesizers now did you know his stuff from herbie like how did you hook up with pat yeah i mean i <clears throat> i knew pat from in actuality this is trivia sextant uh, was it sextant the first was sextant the first one with him yeah that was the first time those synthesizers that were used in quote unquote jazz type music because after bitches brew bitches brew had no synthesizers and the first weather report stuff too doesn't have it right no that's right so sexton was the first i mean so i you know i've known pat for and, and actually there, there was a record that i did with eddie henderson called realization which was the m1 dc band and me ah billy and i played on that and pat's on that too so that's i got to meet you know pat back in that time period and you know we we hit it off very well and we had similar likes similar likes in music and you know that came together on um venetian summer but venetian summer for me the thing that the two things that i like the most was I introduced um, Ray Gomez to the world. He played on Venusian Summer before school days. And I also had on that record someone who became a big person also is um, a synthesizer guy. Oh, David Sanchez. Thank you. Thank you. That's the first David Sanchez in in jazz rock. Thank you. He he did a record called, I think, Forest of Feelings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Record. I don't know if it was before that or after that. I'm not sure. Forest of Feelings is like right around that same time because Billy produced that. Mm-hmm. So these are and also Doug Roush, Doug Doug, Doug Roush who had played with Santana, and who was and, the first bass player in the Jan Hammer group. See, so all this is like connected, man. And, and I used Al Miola and Larry Coriel together on a track, and this a guitar, great track, Prince of the Sea. Yeah, you know, uh, I want to say two synth masters that are underrated, Patrick Gleason and David Sanchez. Of course. And they were both on my first record. That's so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, David goes on to be on Stanley's stuff. Yeah, 
You know? Well, Stan, Stanley copied me all the time. He he <laughs> he just went and looked at who's on my record and said, "Yeah, okay, I want him. I want him." And he used to do that all the time. Please, you know. Yeah. Well, School Days is a great one too. From that. Oh record. yeah, it's a great record. So, I just I just I'll never forget Stanley when he was about. 45 he said man i am not playing school days when i'm 50 years old i am not doing that man i'm not gonna do that i said okay <laughs> good luck that's right the rest is history i don't want to even say anything you know yeah well you got to dance with the one that brought you right that's right take that ticket all the way man mm-hmm and were you, were you happy with Big City? Yes. I, I, I was, I'm more happy with Big City now than I was when I did it. Why is that? Because, man, I hear all of this stuff that, like, I mean, I had Neil Schoen and, and Ray Gomez play together. That's absolute killing track. I mean, you know, uh, Herbie and Verdine White, you know. So, I, it, you know, I, I used to make movies like I make records. Now, you know, I, I turned it around. Okay. Of, of course, I didn't ever made movies. So I used to make records like I'd make movies. I'd get stars that would fill this role. I'd get Robert De Niro to play this part. I'd get Denzel Washington to play this part, you know. I'll get Cecily Tyson to play this part. You know what I mean? Yeah. And make music like that. Personalities, personas. Yes, yes. Because you would pick people that would best tell that story. You'd pick actors that would best be able to tell the story of that scene. And that's how you make it work. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think we should talk about movies a little bit, sci-fi a little bit. I mean, as people who who watch the broadcast know, big Planet of the Apes fan. Okay. You know, uh, 2001, all the original shit. What, what, what's your favorite sci-fi? You named a couple there. That was great. Okay, so now here's some sci-fi trivia. Do you, you ever see a movie called This Island Earth? Of course. Okay, okay. Of course, of course. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, the trans, what was it called? The trans, not the transmogrifier, the, uh, that machine. I can't remember uh, it either. And the big head guys. Yes, 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 yes. Do you know who played in that movie? Remind me. No, okay. If you don't remember, then I'm not gonna say. I'm gonna. That's it. I'm gonna give you some homework, so you go, okay. you go check it out. But, uh, um, Forbidden Planet. Yeah, the robot. Um, Leslie Nielsen's in that. Yes, right, right. Um, <clears throat> of course, the day you stood still. I was going to go right there mm. because because that's one of my top three. Of course. And the soundtrack I listen to all the time. 
that that's that's a real classic. I mean, you know, the the remake was, but Michael Rennie played that part, and Patricia Neal was fantastic. Yeah, and of course, there's the saying of all the science fiction movies: Klaatu, Verada, Nikto. But see, okay, so the fact is where that comes in in the movie, they leave out the first word because she was talking to someone when she said that. Do you to remember? Gort? To Gort. Yes. Yeah. She has to tell Gort the code word. Exactly. So she says, Gort, Klatu Verada Nikto. So, you know. That's awesome, yeah. Yeah, um, also uh, Sam Raim, uh, Sam, the, the professor, when Kla when Klaatu goes to, to the professor, sneaks into his office and, and finishes the math pro problem at the end, and the guy, and the guy- Sam Jaffe. Sam Jaffe, and yeah. he says, this does this really work? And he says, I find that it does well enough to get me from planet to planet. <laughs> <from> university. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, see, I mean, those come off the top of my head. But you know, um, man, there's there's a whole bunch, man. There's a whole bunch. Um, of course, alien. Yeah. Alien aliens and then we take a step prometheus and uh um what's the, the next the next one after prometheus um alien uh requiem or something? no 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 it's the name of a ship too jeez uh, what is the name of that not, uh, not in that series or in that series? No, it's in the series. It's the oh. one after the, the next one. Oh, I can't think of the name of it. Uh, uh, Revenant? No. I can't think of the name of it. I know the film you mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I, I think Alien and uh, the other one, it started out as a action movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger in it. Um, Terminator? Not Terminator. No, 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 no. They were in the jungle. Oh, Predator. Predator. I think that Alien and Predator are two of the best, uh, uh, I would call it villains or, or whatever, created. They How about fantastic. Alien versus Predator? Did you enjoy that yeah, one? It was, you know, it was a little cheesy. It was a little cheesy, you know. We got to mention Blade Runner. You know, yes. And I actually like the, the, the remake. Yeah, it's good. I really like that. But, you know, uh, uh, Alien comes from a movie that was done in the 60s. Who goes there? You mean it? No, no, no. Oh, of course. The thing. The thing. The, the thing. thing. Yes. The original mm -hmm. and the John Carpenter thing right. was fantastic. No, no, no. But this comes at uh, the alien monster or, or alien 
comes from a movie that was done in the 60s. You mean where it's on board the ship, right? Yes, yes. People, but but yes. isn't that it from it came from another planet or something like that? What is that called? No, I mean no, that see now you got me confused. It yeah. the terror from beyond space. No, but this is called oh, what is the name of that movie? Now you made me totally forget it. I'm sorry, you, th those are similar ones in my mind, but I do know the one you mean because it's a serpent-like kind of dragon-like kind of creature that's- Well, no, 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 it's, but it's this thing that it the blood is acid and it goes through the different stages. Oh, that's very alien, yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't think of the name, it's not it the terror from beyond space. Uh, I'm not sure. And it's not, it came from outer space? No, okay. It came from outer space. Is So maybe it is called It, the Terror from Beyond Space. It came from outer space is a totally different. See, I get it all mixed up with comic books because everything was the thing and it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I love that. And, and that's where... I get a lot of my ideas for my music from. Uh, you know, we discussed the other day the trivia about the shadow of low, right? Shadow of? See, here's the deal. Ju Jupiter has 12 moons. One of the moons is Io, spelled I-O. So the name of that tune is the shadow of eel but the printer when it went to print they thought that the i was an l so that's why it's called the shadow of low which is wrong you know so. i think eo is much hipper sounding too that's what i know that's why the shadow of low what is what's low what is that well I, you know i would love to talk with you a little bit about some of your other collaborations because there's so many great ones um you had a trio with Larry Coriel and Victor Bailey, who are both gone now. Yes, yes. And, and I know that that trio addressed uh, a lot of the music from Led Zeppelin. Yes. Um, we just decided to go in and play some music. And I said, man, let's try black dog because i mean you know I, and we came up with this arrangement and uh it worked and it was really cool you know we did uh manic we also there was one other thing that we did i think oh yeah we did slice sex machine too we just went in and played man you know we had some fun. We we did those records that we did were done. The audio file records that were done with one mic with four capsules. Ah, oh. no mixing, no editing. Just we went in and played, and what you hear is what it is. No overdubs or anything. Hmm. Yeah. How great was Victor? My. Five 
best bass players that I enjoy playing with. And not in any particular order. Ron Carter, Buster Williams, Stanley Clark, Victor Bailey, and Marcus Miller. Not Jocko. I I didn't play that much with Jocko. I played, you know, on the record, and which was great. But I did a lot of extensive playing with all five of the other yeah. ones, yeah. you know. So. And that's super important, you know, the the, the drummer bass relationship. Yes, uh, you know, you know, it's it, it's got to start there, right? Exactly. See, any musical relationship has to rely on trust. Trust is the highest dynamic in society, period. Trust over love. That's why they say in God we trust, because trust gives a particular person or thing the ability to, you, you, you would trust another person with your life. It's the highest dynamic that you can really participate in. Musically, it's the same thing. That's when magic happens. Magic happens when the other musicians in the band trust each other. No matter what they do, I trust you. And that's it. That's the highest dynamic that you can have. You know, Larry Coriel is another founding father of jazz rock. Um, I might have mentioned this on the program before, but uh, I did interview Larry for Yale Oral History the day before he passed. Wow. I did not know that. Wow. We we met at his hotel when he was at playing that Iridium engagement. Mm -hmm. He was wonderful. We, he spoke openly about his life and his triumphs and his 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 issues. He went, he played that gig with Steve and Steve's son that night and and uh, didn't wake up from from sleep yeah and it was amazing to speak with him at that point and really get a picture of what it meant to be in first in line trying to bring rock guitar into jazz and i wonder if you could talk a little bit about him and and what he meant to you it's very interesting that you say that back in 1966 I was part of a, a competition by Jazz Interactions, Stanley Sadowski and Alan Pepper. And one of the bands that I competed against was Larry Coriel and uh, Jim Pepper.
I've known Larry that long. Mm. You know, I was like 16, 17 years old. And Larry is on my first solo record, along with Al Demiola. Al Demiola and I were in Return to Forever at that time. And Al's mentor was Larry. And so I got them together to play on Prince of the Sea. Larry with um, the 11th house, we did a lot of gigs together with Return to Forever. Actually, when Return to Forever got back together in 2008, one of the bands that opened for us was Larry Cardiel's 11th House. They put it back together with Alphonse and uh, uh, Randy. Um, so I've known Larry for forever. And uh, Julie, his wife, put together a book called Jazz Rock Fusion. <laughs> yeah. Right here. I have, yep. more than one, I have more than one copy, but please continue. <laughs> so, you know, I've known him for such a long time, man. I mean, you know, there are people that are the fabric of a community, a network. Larry Coriel was one of them, you know, and then later on in our lives, we came back together again to play with Victor. And man, it was, we, we toured the world and made some records. And I just had a real great time with him, you know, um, because I knew him before he had his issues. I knew him while he had his issues. And I knew him after he had his issues. You know, I was on a gig with him when he met his other wife. I still am I'm in contact with her, Tracy. She's a guitar player too, you know. But Larry Larry was what we used to call him a, a marvel of modern science because he's gone through what he's gone through and he was still alive and still vibrant and making music, you know. Um, I miss him. He was super gracious to me that day. And in fact, and you probably already know about this, I mean, he was playing me orchestral and opera stuff that he was working on based on James Joyce Finnegan's Wake and sharing that excitedly. So when you say vibrant, I mean, up to the last hours of his life, yeah, putting it out there. And, and uh, I love always knowing that guys like Jocko and, and Larry Coriel and yourself, you know, you're doing orchestral stuff. You're doing chamber music. That's, yeah. that's why I do it. Because when coming up, 
I thought, well, drummers are composers, composers compose. And that's what you do. Composers compose. Now, it's interesting because composing music, there are these uh, precedents or lanes that have been set up that dictate if you're a composer, that means that you compose classical music. But Stevie Wonder is a composer. James Brown is a composer. Jimi Hendrix is a composer. Billie Eilish is a composer. It all depends upon how you look at it. But composing music is just the actual fact of that. Composing music. Does it have to be a certain type of music for you to be considered to be a composer? So maybe you could be a rock composer or a hip hop composer or a jazz composer. But jazz, hip hop and rock are what? They're music. So a composer is a composer. And I think a composer, aside from the fact that you compose music, but one who composes different types of music definitely should be considered to be a composer. And for me, that was modeled by Frank Zappa. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that 100%. You know, it was interesting because <laughs> the NYU percussion department. Jonathan Fox. Yeah, you know Jonathan? I know Jonathan very well, yeah. Well, Jonathan commissioned me to do a, a, a composition. Um, and in doing that, you know, I was saying, well, man, you know, I've never really done a, a, a percussion ensemble piece. And so we were listening to, and the thing is about percussion ensemble pieces, they, they sounded, I don't know if the right word is existential, but they didn't, it was not a melody that did this one. It was ionization, I mean, is what it is. It's brilliant for what it is. But, and so the black page mm -hmm. is what it is, you know, and and so what I tried to do with my percussion ensemble piece, because I hadn't heard jazz used the way I would want to hear it used. So that's what I did. And, you know, I have, you know, mallet instruments playing melodies and things. But, um, I consider myself a composer now because I have a 
percussion ensemble piece that was done without using strings, without using this, but all the melodies are played by mallet instruments or, or uh, percussion instruments, you know, so. What's the instrumentation, Lenny? Well, there's two snare drums, two uh, percussion players playing toys and things, um, vibes, celeste, piano, um, xylophone, three marimbas, um, two drum sets. Wow. Suspended cymbals, um, timpani. You know the regular percussion ensemble. That's a large group. Yes, I mean for sixteen pieces. Yeah. <clears throat> Has it been recorded? Not yet. You know, um, we're gonna go through uh, rehearsals. It's gonna be debuted uh, next year. Great. Yeah. There's Aspen and then in New York. So. Well, you got the right guy at the helm of that. Jonathan's great. And Jonathan's going to do hip hop timpani, you know. Okay. <laughs> He's a great guy, man. Great guy. And, and just here's some trivia. He told me that, and it's true, that as a student at Juilliard, he got the gig playing timpani when Emerson, Lake and Palmer toured with an orchestra. Oh, really? Wow. So he, he, you should tell him Bendian said this. He was the timpanist in the ELP orchestra. <laughs> I'm going to talk to him about that. Definitely. And they were making like 200 bucks a week. <clears throat> they were living high in the hog. <laughs> and the tour lost millions of dollars. <laughs> But he got to be a rock star for that that summer. And I saw that show in the, at the Garden, the second of two nights, Emerson Piano Concerto, the whole shebang. And I paid $30 to a scalper, and I thought I was getting ripped off. <laughs> wow. So said, yeah, John, I was at that gig. I remember you. <laughs> I must have been 14. Greg, where did you live in Teaneck? Wyndham Road, right off of Sussex, off of Garrison. Wow. I live there now. No, I don't know. Yeah. Well, what part of town are you in? I'm on Glen Court. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, you know, that was key because we could take the bus in, we would go to the garden, we would go to- Of course public theater, we would go to soundscape and all the music was available. We could see, you know, go to the bottom line. Wow, the bottom line, man. That was great. You sent me to, you know, it's fantastic, man. So, okay, I got a trivia question to ask you. Please. By what I looked at so far, I think I'm up to 1980s, I forgot, I don't know. Well, I should say or, that I, I sent Lenny the, the complete Bottom line, gigography, 74 to 04, 30 years of the club, every show. Right. So now, by my looking at it, it seems that Buster Poindexter played there more than anybody. In various personae. 
He's one yes. of the regulars. Yeah. yeah. Loudon, Loudon Wainwright, the Roaches. Yeah. And David Joe Hansen was obviously a, a, a close friend of Alan Pepper. Yeah. Right, right, right. That was a great place, man. It's great music played there. Great times there. Um, you know, it's interesting is that I'm looking at it now and in my early touring days with my own band, comedians opened for me. Right. Now That's this is awesome. Yeah. But this what 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 is interesting and deep is that Franklin Jai opened for you. Richard Belzer yeah. many times. Matter of fact, when when Richard Belzer went on to become an actor and then he came back and did the comedy store i went to see him and he remembered me he said man are you kidding me man oh man we had great times together but here's one for you when i played la and i played at um what's the place out there not the whiskey um proxy Roxy. You know who opened for me at the Roxy? David Letterman. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. David Letterman opened for me at the Roxy, which is really deep. But so, yeah, comedians used to open all the time when I, you know, did my early touring and stuff like that. My, yeah, my and there's dance. a great bottom line story of, uh, Billy's Cobham set up, taking up most of the stage <laughs> and uh, Harry Shearer and his comedy troupe opening. And, and as an aside said to the audience, feel like I'm doing a show in the window of a music store. <laughs> <laughs> That's good one. That's great. But yeah, the, the, um, the comedians that came through the bottom line were incredible. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, Rich Hall, I remember seeing him open for Bruford there, you know, um, comedy was a big part of it. And yeah, yeah. The comedy music connection, I think, was always great. Yeah, I always love that. Prior, any of those guys that were. Oh, I would see Pryor with Miles Davis all the time. All the time. Yeah. Erwin Corey. You know, Professor. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. I feel more like I do now. I had that. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember Brother Theodore? Wow. Jeez. Yeah. That's going back. Yeah. 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 And and a lot of those guys, you know, reminded me of jazz guys in that they had their craft, they had oh. their writing, they they were doing solos, you know. They were improvising, but they were still working off of material. Right. Uh, Lenny, we could go on and on and on. I mean, are, can I ask you a few more things? Sure, sure. Uh, we recently lost Bobby Hutcherson. Yeah. And he, he, he is such an inspiration to me as a mallet player, as a composer. And again, that early Tony stuff with Bobby oh. Hutcherson, you know, on Blue Note. Tell me a little bit about working with Bobby Hutcherson. You know, Bobby was an icon. 
you know, when it, when it comes to to vibes, you talked about Mill Jackson and Bobby Hutcherson. I'm talking about early on. I've, I'm not talking about uh, um, Lionel Hampton, you know, of course the masters, but I got an opportunity to work with Bobby and I worked with Bobby early on in my career when I would go to San Francisco and I'd play in a band with Bobby and Woody Shaw. And what was interesting is the bass player who played upright bass was Paul Jackson. Upright? Yes, yes. <clears throat> and it was great. We'd play at the Both End Club in San Francisco. And then uh, it was like, what, 19, 1980s? No, 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 it was later than that. Uh, I had asked, I mean, I had gotten asked by Sylvia Rohn at uh, Atlantic Records at the time to help refurbish the jazz catalog. And so she asked me to do a couple of records for them that I produced. And one of them, I mean, there were two, they were called Acoustic Masters. And one record was done with um, Billy Higgins, Charles Lloyd, uh, Buster Williams, and Cedar uh, Walton. And then I did another one that I played on with Ron Carter, um, uh, Craig Handy, and Bobby. Um, and it was fantastic record. You know, Bobby Hutchison, when it comes to, you know, like, okay, for, for guys that are my age, the Blue Note record catalog is unprecedented. And Bobby Hutchison was, was a part of that. And so to have the opportunity to produce a record and record Bobby was a uh, a great experience because I really wanted to have the vibes sound really good, you know, so we yeah. had to think about that. And we got a real good uh, sound on Bobby's um, instrument. And then I went, you know, I had stopped playing for a while. And one of my first gigs back was Todd Barkin in San Francisco uh, put together an all-star band that played at the old Yoshi's. And the all-star band was Freddie Hubbard, uh, Bobby Watson, Mel Martin, Bobby Hutchison, Mogul Miller, um, Andy, uh, Andy Gonzalez, uh, no, Jerry Gonzalez, excuse me, and um, Jeff Chambers played bass. And we played uh, a week at Yoshi's. And it was just remarkable playing with Bobby. Bobby is legendary when it comes to the perspective of playing. He had a more modern perspective playing the instrument. He, you know, it's, it's like 
Larry Young had a modern perspective of playing the organ. You know, he was different than Jimmy Smith and Bobby Hutchinson was different than Milt Jackson. They had their own style. They had their own voice. And what can I say? I mean, it's Bobby Hutchinson. And let's not forget that he brought the marimba in. Yes, right. That's correct. Yes, he did. The marimba uh, in, in that music and just the, um, for me, the, the cross between jazz and chamber. Was yeah, so I mean, but it was so great because he was part of the jazz, uh, San Francisco Jazz collect Collective. And, you know, uh, there was some real great music that still does come out of the San Francisco Jazz Collective. But Bobby is one of the original charter members, I, I think. And, you know, um, how he brought the marimba and other things to that perspective was really great. I mean, and that's why his legacy still lives on. Speaking of legacies, I can't let you go without talking about yeah, about the great Chick Corea and what he's left us and what he means to the music and what he continues to mean. It's almost like when we were talking about him earlier that he's still here. Well, he is. He, he's, he was so prolific. They could, they could, this, this, this probably if we went into the vault and got unreleased music, I think you could, you could go for the next five years and have releases. Uh, he created his own genres. Being as prolific as he was, um, he continued to create different scenarios to use his skill set. And to be able to do that, that, that in, its, in itself is um, unprecedented. Because, you know, people maybe have two or three things that they do and they uh function in those areas but he just constantly created different things okay i'm going to write this kind of music i'm going to write this kind of music i'm going to put this kind of band together i'm going to put that kind of band together you know i i i think for me the contribution that he gave to me was i grew up as a man, as a musician, as a communicator in Return to Forever. Um, and that alone, you know, I, I think that how people become or stay immortal is through their teachings or what it is they give to other people that take what it is they've learned from that person and 
move that along. And, you know, Chick gave Stanley, myself, Al, and Billy Connors um, a lot of fodder to work with and to spread um, like perspectives. And I think that that's important. And, and I, I know for me personally, that's what I get. I mean, whatever anybody else gets from what the guys in the electric band and the other bands that played um, with him, um, I, I take it a little bit more personal and know that I grew up in that band. And um, that's what's special for me. That's beautiful. That's all I can say. Yeah. That's, know. You know. Well, Lenny, uh, are you still teaching at NYU? Are you doing uh, the Miles course? Yeah, do the Miles course, and there's another course that I teach with a um, another doctor, um, which is um, it's it's like performing arts in global culture, and it's a very very interesting course because it talks about music and um, how music and uh, ethics work together and an eclectic analysis of music and how that's put together. It's a very, very, very interesting course. I, I taught it for the first time uh, last semester um, with uh, Dr. Christopher Bush. And, you know, it was a big challenge for me, but man, I learned so much and I'm really looking forward to doing it again uh, this semester too. Yeah, I feel the same way about the stuff I teach at William Patterson where we're, we have to open it up. Oh yeah. You gotta yeah. open it up. You gotta open it up to the world. You gotta you gotta teach global. You gotta teach global citizenship. You know, um, as musicians, we've toured the world, and that changed our our whole mindset. Yes, but yes. People who haven't traveled, you know, don't, don't maybe don't have that perspective. So sharing that has been a big part of of the goal that that I'm I think. Yeah, I think what's interesting too is how we teach because that's that has to be moved up you know things have been taught so stoically all these years this is the what it is this is how you teach things have changed man and perspectives give more of a chance to get into how you teach a student something. Um, I've found wins being able to endear a student to a methodology and for that student 
to be able to do his or her own research based on what it is that you've given them an opportunity to think about. And then they become really ingratiated to you. And then they become friends for the rest of your life. I have students that I've taught that I still talk to every day. Hey man, come on, let's get to get, let's go to a movie or let, you know. So that way of communicating is opened me up and helped me uh, think about how I talk to people and teach. It's a very valiant profession. It definitely gives us uh, also learning from from the young people what's going on, you know, what yep. they're thinking about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look at how young you are. Who, me? Yeah, you. <laughs> <laughs> really? Am I? Man, come on. <laughs> I want to be Lenny White when I grow up. <laughs> Lenny. What a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for this time. Hey, thank you so much, man. I mean, and we're like in the same neighborhood, man. We got to spend some more time, you know. We, we will. We'll hang. Yeah, we'll go have something to eat, you know. And we'll that's when, and that's when we'll really talk, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> we'll go to Bischoff's. We'll get some ice cream. <laughs> right. Okay. Sure. <laughs> what, what are people uh, looking for that you have coming up? Well, you know, again, hopefully, I, I don't know if it's going to be readily available, but I mean, I'm, I have these, uh, I have a percussion ensemble piece. Actually, Billy's doing one too. Great. Um, and I have uh, some orchestral music that'll debut um, late next year or 2023. Great. And what's your website? I mean, I don't really have a website anymore. I mean, okay. you know, um, you can go to my Facebook page. <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll, we'll look for you on Facebook and just plug in. And, 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 and also, the, the Stick People. Go to Stick People. Stick People is Michael Shreve, um, Michael Clark, Dave Garibaldi, Gregorico, and myself. And we talk about music and drummers and bass players. And check it out, Stick People on Facebook. And you can find those on YouTube as well. Yes, yes. So yeah, the Stick People, great discussions with great drummers. And uh, my guest has been the great Lenny White icon of, of jazz rock and beyond. And I'm so pleased to be able to, to call him a friend and, and to be able to speak with him about all the great history. Thank you, Lenny. And thank you everybody for listening. Thanks, Greg. Peace. Peace.